Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon. Joining me on the other line, just back from a very awkward but very godly dinner, it's Danielle Hanley. Oh, my God. Hello. That makes me only half as angry as your other potential one did. So that's, that's true. good. That's true. The other potential one was, of course, about becoming clean for Jesus Christ. No, thank you. Absolutely yeah, not. We, we, will, we will share in passing on that, as tempting <laughs> as it was. But uh, today we're talking about American Season 3, Episode 4, Dimebag, directed by Thomas Schlamme and written by Peter Ackerman. And Danielle has a summary for us. So the IMDb summary for Dimebag is... Philip faces a moral dilemma while developing an asset. Philip and Elizabeth's friction escalates. Stan develops a theory with serious repercussions for national security. Paige makes a surprising birthday wish. A surprising birthday wish, indeed. I just want to say that, like, this summary is like someone was taking a class that was like, every sentence can only do one thing. Every sentence can only do one thing, and no sentence can be longer than eight words. Yeah, exactly. Which Antithetical like, to the way that you and I write, where every <laughs> sentence needs to do 17 things and be at least 84 words. Oh, my God. John and I are – here's the thing. We love writing together, but we also, like, amplify the worst parts of each other's writing. The, the absolute most terrible <laughs> Like, the posters myself and my academic writing that I'm most ashamed about, Danielle is willing to indulge to the fullest. <laughs> but then not, like not <laughs> not unlike this podcast. I mean what is this if not just another outlet for our like academic vendettas? <laughs> <laughs> Truth. Or as you said yesterday. <laughs> Settle our accounts for settling our accounts for settling our intellectual accounts. That's right. That's right. Some real Marx and Engels eighteen forty five energy, much like uh, Carrie Russell. You did miss the subtle segue I I set us up for twelve seconds ago, but that's okay. We're still going to focus about truth in this episode, (laughs) and this is an always already possible centralized focus for the episodes early for an always already <laughs> it's early it's so one with well we're if we're going to indulge our worst parts of ourselves why not go there as soon as possible so truth could be a kind of central organizing theme for any episode mm-hmm. danielle but why do we choose to focus on it for this one i think one of the things we were thinking about like in trying to think through the big pieces of this episode is, is this question of like how much truth does one let into their spy craft is like a big question that we see for Philip and Elizabeth, which I think is where we'll start, but also like something that helps consolidate some of the significant moments with Paige, with Kimmy, with Nina, with Stan, like sort of down the list, this question of truth and like how much do you let on or how much does do you let it come in? Like, that's an important thing for all of these characters. It is, and it's also a way for each of these characters to, for us to consider how much they delude themselves versus how clear-eyed they are about their motivations, their intentions, the psychic dynamics of what they're doing, the kinds of things that you and I like to talk about. And then there's also this additional layer that I think 
probably makes this interesting to both of us, which is a kind of classic like reception or rhetorical sort of thing where it's what does the truth of these characters for the viewer, yeah. how does that contrast with the truths of the characters within, right? The piece, the yeah. work of art itself. Yeah. How do, how do the characters construct quote unquote truth for themselves? And what do we as the viewers know uh, either about that truth or about like the delusion? Like what, what do we know by virtue of watching it? Right. And then there's the, that additional layer of like, what does, what do the methods of cinema or television or the kind of structures and like techniques and media, literal medium of uh, yeah. those do with regards to truth production? Oh, I love it. I love any time we can talk about reception and performance. I, I, I know you do. Um, <laughs> that's my, that's my returning the indulgent gift back to you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so maybe we should start with Philip and Elizabeth. I suppose so. You know, <laughs> minor characters, <laughs> if you will. No, but I think Philip and Elizabeth really exemplify this. They exemplify this line of questioning, this line of questioning around around the truth one constructs for themselves, around the the amount of delusion that that one engages with. And I think, like for me, the big thing happening in this episode is now. This is the second episode where we're seeing like the conflict really bubbling up between Philip and Elizabeth over uh, sort of what to do with Paige. And they're still sort of like deluding themselves and deluding one another with regard to the manipulation that they're each engaging with. And we've touched on this the past couple of episodes, but I think it's really clear in this one, the extent to which Elizabeth understands how Philip is deluding himself about Mm -hmm. his relationship with Paige vis-a-vis her potential future KGB career can't see the way she's manipulating Paige as manipulation. Meanwhile, Philip can fully see the way that Elizabeth is manipulating Paige, but cannot see his own manipulation. So there's a, there's an, there's a kind of perception of the other truth vis-a-vis the other and an inability to kind of recognize what one is doing in their own lives here. Yeah. I think also a different way to read that. And I appreciate that reading because that's not how I was thinking about it, but I think a different way to read it is that it's, perhaps not necessarily that Elizabeth is deluding herself, but like there's something about the training in spycraft that they have, which is like deny it until you absolutely cannot anymore. And so it might, it it might be less of a, like a active in less of an inability to recognize and more of like an active form of defense mechanism to, to like, just like, go as hard for as long as she possibly can. Right. Which does typify and characterize Elizabeth in all aspects of her life, right? Whether it's with regards to Paige or Philip or to non-existent absent parenting Henry or to (laughs) any of the kind of various relationships she has with the exception of Gregory, right? There is a certain kind of like lack of defense mechanism, I think, in, in her relationship with him. Yeah, and I also sort of think that there's at least a softening of that mechanism with Gabriel, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's mm-hmm. there's a – I sense, even though we don't get Gabriel in this episode, my sense is that Elizabeth is more open with him than and, – and probably that has something to do with the like replacement father, blah, 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 like that piece of the relationship um, in a way that she maybe wasn't with Claudia or with Kate. Right, because she always had – 
both conscious and unconscious defense mechanisms up for both of those. Yeah. Whereas Gabriel, she is at ease with, right? He's a kind of substitute father figure, as we talked about last week, these sorts yeah. of things. Yeah. And so that also, then that brings us to Philip, right? Because like Philip is also deluding himself. And I, I, my read on Philip is that like, and I think, again, this is consistent with his character as we've been understanding him throughout this show is that he is at once like aware that he needs to up his game in terms of manipulation and also unaware at the extent to which he is engaging in manipulation. Right. Like, yeah. Mm hmm. That mm-hmm. there's some there it's not cut and, it's not as cut and dry with Philip as I think we are being pushed to read with Elizabeth. I mean, look, in this episode, Philip learns about Yaz from Kimmy, the like sixteen or seventeen year old. Oh, he is trying to so young. He's trying to develop as an asset and does express some discomfort about. But after just expressing that discomfort, immediately upon Kimmy playing him Yaz through her like felt 80s style headphones, what's the <laughs> thing that he does? He goes to the record store on his fucking way home to get the new Yaz record for Paige circumventing like the, without realizing he's circumventing the conversation they had about what yeah. would be the gift for Paige. And he's insistent that like, no, I did not get this as a gift for Paige for any other reason other right. than that I thought it'd be cool to give her this, this record, but B or a, that's a lie. And B, the only yeah. reason he knows about Yaz and Paige is like, how the fuck do you know about this band? Is he's like <laughs> Kimmy, the 16 year old he is developing as an asset for the KGB. It's all gross. Yeah, and I guess like I'm I'm less inclined to read Philip's like delusion or like engagement in delusion of himself as a product of his training and more inclined to read it as like a kind of emotional response. I would agree with that. It's a way that he attempts to resolve the fundamental split subject um, of himself. Oh, right? You. Yeah. Right? I mean, absolutely. That's... Yeah. Anything else on Philip and Elizabeth that you were thinking about? I think it's worth briefly discussing the conversation, the argument that Philip and Elizabeth yeah. have towards kind of the end of the episode. Absolutely. And another argument that takes place in their bedroom. A lot of the arguments in season three have been within the bedroom yeah. while Philip is sitting or lying on the bed, like passing time and Elizabeth is changing or doing some sort of like kind of domestic, quote unquote domestic activity. Yeah. But here, like they give Elizabeth all of the, active and cutting, but also mean and arguably false lines, but also true in their own way. Right. So Elizabeth says, do I want certain things for her? Yes. Right. Interesting line. Then I think the harshest thing is just because you want to do nothing, yeah, right, which is the meanest line that she gives to Philip and is a lie, right? Like it's not that long ago that, Philip's agent, who he actually cared for, Annalise, like got choked to death, and they yeah. jointly shoved her dead body into oh, the suitcase. Like, I forgot about that. <laughs> so there's there's the, I think kind of I think that's Elizabeth's emotional defense mechanism, right? Yeah. That you were describing a few minutes ago, kind of cropping up in that argument, like in that kind of crucible of their broader emotional struggle over the fate of Paige. Yeah. And I mean, like it goes to the question of like the, like you're going to, you'll, you want to do nothing, right. Goes to the question of like what counts as action, 
right? Elizabeth has a very clearly defined sense of action. And that is only things that sort of like come down through the way she understands the mission and like anything that is not that I think like in her meanest moments, anything that's not captured by the mission is like counts as nothing. And that's what she's throwing back at Philip. Like at, in some way we have never quite moved beyond the fact that early on in the first season, Philip is like ready to get out of there. And Elizabeth just like, it seems like she can't ever let that go. And Gabriel is willing, Claudio is always willing to remind her of that. Gabriel is still willing to remind her of that. Absolutely. So I think maybe this is a good time to move to Paige since like their fights are about Paige, right? Like whether they, you know, whether they're going to develop her, whether or not, like that's the, that's the conflict. And to me that, that conflict is again, an extension of that, like from the beginning, Philip is not willing to to be all in anymore. And Elizabeth has never really not been all in, even in the moments where she hasn't been. Right. At so least in her mind. We get to their daughter who has sublimated her Aaron <laughs> yeah. spycraft into her love for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in an abandonment of all her friends. And who does she want to have a birthday dinner with friends with? Like, great idea, Mom. The only thing people I want over, my friends for my birthday dinner, are Pastor Tim and his wife. Her surrogate parents. Her surrogate parents from <laughs> the real surrogate daddy in the sky. Right. Oh, so like we got God. a whole chain. I of hate it. all of this. I we hate it all. A, so a, chain, a chain of daddies um, <laughs> making their way down to Paige to replace Philip. <laughs> and the reason that one of the reasons that Paige is bringing them together is to like drop her own kind of truth bomb into the thing where she wants to be baptized, has talked about it with her surrogate parents uh, before talking about it with her actual parents. And Philip and Elizabeth are both upset at the fact that Paige wants to get baptized and at the fact that Paige essentially manipulated them into this situation. And it's like, she learned from literal professionals. <laughs> like right. she has been on to you guys. She she obviously doesn't fully know yet, but like in her subconsciousness she does. But she's like learned manipulate you're literally manipulating her every single minute. You're like asking her to read the goddamn newspaper and like you're quizzing her on it. What do you think? She doesn't know how to do that? Mm-hmm. I mean, and they even have a conversation. And a really cool, after a really cool camera shot of Elizabeth, where Elizabeth and Philip talk about how this is what, what they can agree on, that Paige set them up, that while they fight, Paige set them yeah. up. Yeah, and I think, like, that is a very good point, and also, like, it feels like exactly the point that, like, feminists of color were making, like, in third wave feminism being like you're trying like we we're being manipulated by like the the powers that are trying to dominate us like that's essentially the read that elizabeth has of page and i'm like yeah you're right that's absolutely what's happening yeah and page 
in some ways calls the question of Elizabeth's faux support of the church at this moment, like talk yeah. about kind of seeing through or piercing through various fabrications or falsehoods that are constructed, right? Yeah. Very transparently, Elizabeth's support of Paige going to church participation and like letter stuffing for churches a tiny bit like the cause is good, whatever, like criticize right. the US government, that's fine, but it's mostly to develop and recruit Paige. And Paige is like, oh, you want to encourage me to go to the church for your nefarious ends? This is what that actually means. Right, right. Like this is this is me redefining what truth is like and reminding you that I'm the one doing the defining, at least for my own life. I think also, right, like something that Elizabeth says to Philip, and this is like earlier on in the episode where Philip is talking about Martha wanting to foster kids. And Elizabeth uh, has another like mean quip, which is who wears the pants in that relationship? Yeah. And there, which is like, okay. Um, But I actually think the the sort of challenge that Paige lays to Elizabeth on the like the church going point is like that quip coming back to bite Elizabeth in the ass a little bit. Yeah. And and like it's a Elizabeth's question is about power, right? And like truth and power being connected. And so I think that like at least my takeaway from this episode is like Paige is the one that wears the pants in this relationship. Mm -hmm. Because while they're busy fighting, uh, she sets them up. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. A classic, maybe relevant to uh, conversations we'll have later on as well. All right, let's go from one favorite teenager to another. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, so, and again, there's like the broader kind of just, it's clear from literally the first scene in this episode yeah. how fucked up Philip is feeling about the fact yeah. that he's developing an agent who's essentially a daughter avatar and like maybe a year older than Paige. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so like Kimmy, after like the briefest introduction over the like surveillance mechanisms and equipment <laughs> last week, like we get a lot of Kim Kimmy Breland in this episode. We get a lot of her. That discomfort never went away for me. So, Nor did it go away for Philip. I mean, just yeah. think about, like, the final shot of the episode is Kimmy has, like, snuggled into Philip slash Jim, right? His yeah. new persona. Um, Clark, Jim, you know. A new dirtbag. <laughs> yeah, new dirtbag. Dirtbag Jim, right? And so Kimmy is, like, nestled into him in the cold weather. Um, why doesn't she have a jacket on? Great question that I don't know the answer to other than that it was convenient for this episode, but like the face that Philip is giving, he knows when he ever, he's looking at Kimmy in that final scene, he's yeah. fully inhabiting his persona, his disguise. But anytime she cannot make, she yeah. cannot see or read his face. He looks so like fucked up about what is happening, which is legitimate. She's 15. Yeah. And, and also like, Again, this is another, we always talk about like whether or not Stan is good at his job, right? Like that's like a, that's a like ubiquitous refrain in this podcast. But I think another one of those refrains for us is like, how is Philip feeling about being a spy? And like moments like this or, or instances where he is, you know, forced to manipulate a teenager and like 
sort of string her along in like in a way that seems to be like eventually promising some kind of sexual relationship, whether or not that actually gets cashed in. Right. I know. No comment. <laughs> Deploying like pickup artist techniques. Like he's yeah. constantly necking her in this yeah. episode. Right? Yep. Like that's his, you know, making fun of uh, their IDs, making fun of their weed, making fun of their yep. age, like in all of yep. these ways, like he is trying to get to Kimmy by negging her. Uh, making fun of the fact that she like can't get rapper head around like being a lawyer and a lobbyist and like, like, yeah, she's on to you. And also like, you're going to now use that against her, but like, it's to me, this is another, another sort of like entry into the Philip dossier, which is like not being fully on board with whatever they're doing. And I feel like at some point, like to me, that's the main tension in the show. And at some point this, this like, it has to crack. No comment. I will say about the kind of truth elements of Kimmy's story. Yeah. There is her not fully telling the truth about her parent or about her dad, about Isaac Freeland, right? So she hints at things about him. He hates lobbyists and he hates lawyers, right? Like gives some clues about he's pretty absent, et cetera, et cetera. But she never actually tells Jim, quote unquote, Jim, what her father does. But like more importantly, there's a certain kind of obvious but I still think pretty effective literalization of Philip Qua Jim in mm-hmm. the real ID fake ID thing right like mm-hmm. you literally have a spy using the question of do this ID real or fake is this fake ID passable etc cetera, etc cetera, right. as a way to entrap somebody for his spying purposes yep. so there's a like not only is Philip dealing with his own version of the truth vis-a-vis Paige through his, like, having to recruit Kimmy. Yeah. But also then manipulating Kimmy through a question about, like, the truth or falsity or the, or the veracity of something. Yeah, and it, it seems to me like Philip feels alienated from his, like, the life that he wants through that sort of mirroring of Paige in Kimmy and, like, is all of these like methods that he is required to use for his own survival. He's now using like on this stand in for his daughter. And I think it just like, it illuminates how, how sort of central deception is to his own life. And it seems to me like in a way that is like deeply discomforting, right? Like, or deeply like troubling to him. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to, like, the how does Kimmy further exacerbate the, like, split subjectivity of Philip? Exactly. But, you know what, everything exacerbates one split or multiple subjectivity. So, like, that's also a very easy read for me to make. (laughs) You know, just, like, some casual, uh, like, quips about subjectivity here. That's that's what they flock question mark to the not quite great books podcast for. Uh, so according to the Americans fandom wiki, um, it is true that Paige is indeed a year younger than Kimmy. Okay, okay. So like from from events in the show, we know that Paige was born in sixty eight. Kimmy was born in sixty seven. 
Oh, she's still so young. Still so young. All right. So we've got still more uh, characters in truth distress here in this episode. Yeah. We've got Nina as well, who in a continuation of the first couple seasons, yeah. it is still melding her sense of her own truth yeah. with her spycraft skills or instincts yeah. in a way that is opaque to the viewer, opaque especially to the people that she's interacting with, but maybe also opaque to herself. I think that that last point, that opaque to herself, feels like the most important part because it felt like through the first two seasons we were seeing Nina struggle to, like, gain some sort of, like, upper hand on her own situation, right? Like, gain some sort of control over, like, the conditions of her life. And obviously, like, that totally collapses at the end of uh, the last season. And frankly, like when this season started, I was surprised that we were still getting any Nina. Like I just assumed that like this was going to be a character that was like written off and dead. Right. Mm -hmm. But we're back with Nina and she's still struggling to have some control over like the conditions of her life, even though she is, in a prison and has no control. And I think like there's something about that struggle for like struggle to be the one defining what counts as truth for oneself is like something that consistently eludes Nina. In part because she keeps being faced with these impossible choices put forward to her by institutions, by the FBI, by the KGB, by the whoever, whatever agency oversees Soviet prisons, I'm not exactly sure, to be quite honest, right? So here that choice is, okay, if you're able to get Evie to confess to the spying we think she's doing, mm -hmm. then we will grant your request for a more lenient sentence. And so everything that happens to Nina afterwards, we have to evaluate as viewers on the basis of to what extent is, is she kind of telling her own story or her own sense of her truth? Yeah in a quote-unquote authentic or genuine way, although I have problems with those terms in the first place at all whatsoever, <laughs> as you can imagine, as I'm sure you share. As, as I share. Um, on the one hand, and the extent to which she is trying to manipulate Evie through the story or quote-unquote truth she's telling. Yeah. And then to what extent those two things are actually the same. I, that was literally the question I was going to ask is like, are those things, are those sort of like things that different at the end of the day? And I, I think for Nina, they're not. I think for Nina, they're not in part because we get in one of the interactions between her and Evie or Evie, the most elaborate, most direct and most quote unquote honest storytelling or narration of her own life, right? The kind of self narration mm -hmm. process of she did stupid things to save herself. I confess they gave me a chance, right? I was my first posting to America. I was very proud, so on and so forth, right? So in true kind of real spy fashion and better spy than to some extent, honestly, Philip and Elizabeth in this episode, yeah. she is both being totally honest and being totally manipulative at the same time. At the end of the day, manipulation and honesty are not necessarily like counterproductive or they're not, op they're not necessarily oppositional though. Like 
normatively or like at least or morally or ethically, like we tend to think of them as things that are like, I think that's, there's an interesting parallel between like Nina and Elizabeth in that regard. And I think there always has been right. Where there's a sort of Elizabeth has like this sense of like, like moral straightness or that she is like her choices are like normatively correct. Right. Because they are like following from the like center of like ideology that she supports and has given her life to. Right. And yet she is often honest about that and engaging in manipulation. And I think like, the the difference between her and Nina, at least for me, is that Elizabeth is more aware of those dynamics and aware of the sort of, like, potential messiness. And Nina is, like, striving for this control that I think maybe Elizabeth has given up on. I don't know if that made any sense. It does make sense, although I'm not sure that Elizabeth has given up on it so much as seeking to always maximize her control over the situation while recognizing that there's no such thing as a full or total yeah. securing of that. Yeah. I think that that's, that is consistent with what I was thinking that like, there is a certain, there's a certain sense to Elizabeth that she knows that she can never be fully in control. And I think maybe take some comfort in that because like, what is in control for her is the sort of like ideological like beacon. I do love that you brought together Nina and Elizabeth here because that's a pairing that the show rarely overtly or semi overtly makes. And it's not something we spent a lot of time discussing in two point, whatever seasons of the Americans so far, but it's something that's brought very, very directly to heart here in this episode. And like, I'm thinking specifically the cut from Nina's first try attempt to try to talk to Evie to Elizabeth showing up at Lisa's doorstep. Right. So yeah, the in which like there's just a paralleling of the two in the editing of this episode that I think is a little bit different than some of the things they've done before. No, I agree with that. And maybe that is part of, maybe I'm being manipulated by the episode to think them together. There we go. Which I'm into. Good editing then. Yeah, Yeah. we'll take it. All right. We've, of course, have one more uh, self-deceiver or Uh, maybe not so much to get to in this episode. And that is everyone's (laughs) favorite, terrible FBI agent. Slash maybe brilliant slash asshole Stan. Everyone's favorite S member. Everyone's favorite S member. That's right. Exactly. I have to say, I said this to you before we started recording, but like, I am honestly surprised that Stan is still going to S meetings. I mean, like over the course of this episode, I became less surprised by it, but I just like, we open up on the S meeting and I'm like, we're back here. What's happening? Get out of there. You think it's bullshit. We all think it's bullshit. Cults are bullshit. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, he's either here or he's not, Danielle. Oh my God. According to our favorite S seminar leader. It's like no shit, Sherlock. (laughs) (laughs) So let's think about this though. And we can think about even in terms of a truth question. Yeah. Do you think there's a moment when Stan gets called up to the front of the room to like do this kind of um, like 
visualization or whatever <laughs> we want to call it, um, acting out of the scenario. At what point do you think he's like always this is bullshit and I hate doing this? Or do you think at some point he does kind of transition over into some version of actually really doing est in that scene? Well, I, I think what's beautiful about the like this is bullshit and I hate it is that he's both speaking to like Mr. S man and also speaking to Sandy, right? Like that yeah. that is also like the thing the the thing that makes it ambiguous is like he's supposed to be envisioning like Sandy like that that's who he's talking to and i think it's pretty easy for us to think about to envision Stan saying i hate this this is bullshit to Sandy because ultimately like that's what she called him on the last time they had a conversation about Est yeah Right. Yeah. You're an asshole. Don't call it. You're the asshole. Don't call me the asshole. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. About us could be about Sandy. Yeah. And, and like, it's like, I think, so I think, listen, we hadn't always already. Now we're going to have a both and like, we've already had several. We just haven't (laughs) put attention to them yet. Where I'm going to call like big highlighter, like arrows, like this is both. And Stan is both like, rejecting S because that is like who Stan Core is. Of his personality. Yeah. yeah. And also like has internalized some of the teachings of S because now they've been sitting there for a few weekends and has been called out. And I think one of the things that I'm starting to learn about Stan is like being called out is like a big issue with him. It's like he, I think he feels emasculated in that moment. Um, it's, a thousand percent. It's interesting that he tries to make Philip go up. Which is, <laughs> right. like, which is like, what is Philip going to say? Like, Philip, I'm, I'm a spy. Philip, who <laughs> it would be interesting to have Philip do an S exercise. It'd be like a real test of his capabilities and skills. Oh my god, it's uh, like how the show ends. <laughs> <laughs> I think Dan- I Danielle just I we got to stop recording the last the last scene Figured of the Americans. <laughs> Phil is still an S with Stan in 1988, and he is doing. An S role play with Lawrence, the S instructor. Oh my and god! And admits that he's a spy because he mixed up. You Clark. asshole! I'm a spy. <laughs> he mixed up Clark and Philip and Jim. Stan and- is like dumbfounded. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that would have been an ending to this. And movie. like f- S- Soprano style, fade to black. Don't stop believing. <laughs> <laughs> I have no comment about that. No notes. No. <laughs> so, oh, uh, because there's no, I love this. I mean, there's it's fascinating because we got the end of the previous episode. Stan starting to have doubts about Zenyatta. Yeah. In this episode, he goes to Gad and says, I think there's something going on, something wrong with Zenyatta. I think that, like, she's going to have access to the president, to the Pentagon, to, like, all these right. diplomats, to all these Congress people, whatever, whatever. And so, like, the thing that happens in between those two scenes is Stan has this moment where he is both rejecting Est and giving in to Est at the very same time. And so there's something that is clarifying to him about Est because the other moment of clarification, self-clarification amid all of the self-denial that's happening with Stan all the time is when he finally confesses fully to Sandy. Yeah. Right. 
what he did, what happened. He was having an affair. He loved this other woman, et cetera, et cetera. Like not seemingly with a, at least explicit or direct ask to, and now you're, now you take me back. Well, and she's like, I'm not, I'm not engaging in this bullshit. Like she right. just, she walks away. Which is away. the right move. Which, which is, is the right, the right move. move. Yeah. And also like, I do think there's something about Stan revealing this to her. That is also like the right move for him. You doing so using the word that he focused on through S, right? He says, you know, I was the asshole, right? Yeah. Which of course is like the argument that he gets into with Lawrence at S as well. So yeah. there's the, you know, not for the first time there being like Stan's emotional quasi clarity that he realizes through S further confirms to Sandy how broken up they need to remain. Yeah. But what about Stan? Stan does not feel particularly broken up. No, but Stan also is like, I don't know, sort of both processing the the fact that he doesn't think that he's single and that Sandy doesn't want to be with him and that like they're going through this divorce even and it's like he has no control over that. But he, and like deluding himself about that, right? The fact that like Stan doesn't consider himself single is like this moment uh, is like another reminder of his delusion. That is also his truth. Like in his truth to himself, he is not single. Exactly. So like, it's where like truth and delusion meet, I think really explicitly in Stan, because Mm -hmm. it's like, you see so clearly like the reality that he has constructed for himself. And also so clearly that that is not a reality that anybody but him lives in. Like, as Philip, as Philip is very clear about as well, not just Sandy, but also yeah. Philip and Zineda too, for the record. Yeah. Well, and also like Philip in this episode, but Philip in general, Philip's like, yeah, you're an FBI agent and, and my neighbor and we still hang out and I'm a fucking spy. Like I'm spying over here next to you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I like mean, there's. That, do you have any, oh, so I have two questions for you. Okay. You the more or less serious question first. The more serious question. More serious question. When Stan tells Tori that he is not single, to what extent is he thinking of Sandy? To what extent is he thinking of Nina? I thought that he was thinking of Sandy. Okay. Because, like, I think for him, like, Nina is gone, right? Even though he's in love, he was in love with her, I think, like, the only way that he can, like, go back to Sandy and, like, the part of, at least for me, like, part of the only reason he's in Est is, like, because of Sandy. Like, he's not in Est for Nina. Correct. I, the reason I ask is that I think Stan wants to get back with Sandy, obviously, but that yeah. really he's in love with Nina and not Sandy, right? Like, he's oh. is, is, is Stan in love with Sandy? I actually don't no. think so. I don't think so. I, so yeah, I think that I think your read on that is correct, but I but I think that when he says he's not single, he's thinking about Sandy. Okay, that's that's fair. All right, so my less serious question yeah. is is Philip a good or bad wingman for for Stan? Philip is a terrible wingman. <laughs> First of all, he should have volunteered to get up. He knows Stan's going through it and that like this is at least like some kind of bullshit that they're there at this thing. One. And second of all, he doesn't, I don't know, engage Tori like, oh, no, 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 we're definitely going to come. Like, yes, let me take your number. I'll make sure he calls you. Like, there are many a thing that Philip could have done. Terrible wingman. Fair. Okay. Those those are my questions. <laughs> um, so I think it's worth also 
talking about Zenieta here, and I'm yeah. sure we will a little bit later on as well, that Zenieta kind of calls Stan on part of his bullshit and their conversation yeah. about divorce, right? Yeah. Like, because Zenieta doesn't necessarily have the two English words divorced and separated as two separate things, yeah. right? So Stan insists that, oh, he's just separated, he's not divorced, and Zenieta is like, is it helping? <laughs> you, know. you know what, Zenieta? Great question. Well, and it's also like there's something about that. It's like, oh, outside perspective, someone who doesn't know anything about you, who is likely tasked at being able to read you, whether just for her own survival as like uh, someone who is like betraying her own country yeah. or as we will, I think, get into later as a double agent, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right? Like being able to read people is like part of what Zenieta has to be good at. But it's also, again, it sort of troubles that, like, okay, there's a reality that we create for ourselves, and part of, like, the game or part of the challenge is, like, getting others to buy into that reality. Mm-hmm. And Zenyatta's like, I want no part of, like, your nonsense, like, not divorced, not separate, whatever you are. Like, here's the here's the real, real as I see it. Mm-hmm. In the context of Stan now being fairly convinced that something is wrong about Zanita's story, existence, status, even as he can't quite put his finger on it, to the extent that he like drops Zanita back off wherever she's staying, like some hotel that the FBI has secured or whatever, yeah. or to assume, goes back to the diner as it's closing, slams his fucking oh badge against the door <laughs> at the owner or the person like cleaning at the very end of yeah. the night goes into the bathroom and like fucking tears it apart, like climbs up to the ceiling, falls back down, which I thought yeah. was hilarious. Yeah, like, I know. Tearing apart the paper towel container, tearing apart the tampon the container. <laughs> yeah. Like rolling the towels out. He's convinced that Zanita had left something there during uh, her trip to the bathroom earlier. Like, okay. Point number one, like, Have we ever heard of the Fourth Amendment? Obviously not. This is the FBI. Point number two, I I was somehow obsessed with the fact of, like, does the diner get reimbursed by the FBI (laughs) for the damage, the havoc that Stan has wrought in their woman's bathroom? I knew that you were going to have these two points. Like, I, like, was watching the scene, and I was like, John's going to have a Fourth Amendment rant about this. I mean, also... Talk about an alert, an illegal search and seizure, bro. No, I agree. I I agree. I agree, but I was like, ooh, this has, like, John written all over it. No, I, like, great questions. I'm still not convinced that there's nothing there. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. I'm just like in the pocket. I'm like, ooh, is Stan is Stan good at his job? Here's like a thing that that I didn't understand though. Just like, why did he have to be creepy about the Milky Way? Like, why did he have to be creepy about the Milky Way bar? Like, you could. No, I mean, like, I know that she loves Milky Way bars, but so here's my thinking, and this is like my version into Stan's fucked up brain. Uh, But it's my, my working theory is that he goes, he's like waiting by the bathroom, like, because he's suspicious of Zanita. He notes, he clocks the fact that there's like a candy vending machine there with Milky Ways in them. 
and then gets a Milky Way to test Sineda to see whether like she had other things on her mind, right? So she's so he's like, how could you miss your favorite candy bar? Because he wanted to see if Sineda like was preoccupied or if she would like notice her surroundings by the fact that there was a vending machine with the Milky Way. So it's like a test. It's oh. a it's a like meaningless test that Stan puts a lot of meaning in for Zanita. It was too much. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> so we're back to Stan being bad at his job. <laughs> ah, the safe resting home of the Not Quite Great Books podcast. Shall we head to the segments? Let's go to the segments. All right. Time for somebody who is great at her job. Danielle, what's, <laughs> what's in the dossier? That, that okay. someone is you. I'm not talking about who or what is in the dossier. I'm talking about you <laughs> creating the dossier. I mean, like, uh, am I a great conspiracy theorist? Yes. Yes, I am. Do you mostly <laughs> use those powers for good? Mostly. Mostly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at least on this podcast, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I feel like the first place I want to go is, like, the Nina prison deal. Right. So I am just skeptical. So first of all, like they, they are like, okay, we'll give you this deal. We'll let you, we'll let you out. Or, you know, it'll be like a less intense sentence if you help us do this. But it's like, Nina, these people mostly want you dead or want you to suffer. They're going to manipulate you and then nothing's going to happen with it. So I just want to put that on the table. Like I want to register that analysis that there's no actual deal and there's like no, like Nina has no bargaining power there. So like, what are they going to do? Kill her? She thought she was going to die anyway. So like, I don't know. It just, it feels like don't let yourself get manipulated by the powers that be. No comment. Okay. And then this is going back to where we ended. The main discussion is like, I, like I said, I still am suspicious of Zenyatta. Like, I think that, I think that this is a, we're going to find out that it, for the, in this moment alone, Stan is good at his job. Maybe she didn't hide anything in the bathroom or whatever, but like, I, <sighs> Something is up with Zinyeda. I'm not sure what it is. I don't like it. I just okay. don't like it. That's Fair. it. All right. Great entries for the dossier. Anything else we want to add? I mean, I will say that I had Chekhov's page. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you get to explain or no? We can just leave it as Chekhov's page. Well, in the beginning of the episode, it was like when Philip and Elizabeth are having the discussion about Kimmy and like they're like, oh, we've never used someone this young before. And then like immediate cut to page, like getting home. And I was just like, this is just Chekhov's page. Like stuff is going to go on with page this, this episode. And then it does. So, I yeah. mean, it's like, but I had it in my notes. So I'm, I want to register it as my Chekhov for this episode. Excellent. Um, what about Chekhov's Yaz record? Oh yeah, Chekhov's Yaz record is um There's a secret engraving uh that Philip made for Kimmy and Paige is gonna find it. That's my Chekhov's Yaz record. <laughs> Amazing. I'll tell All right, you. let's go into glass. I think there are a couple kind of plot points that we didn't necessarily fit into the main discussion that are worth bringing in here. The first is Elizabeth's overnight stay at Lisa, right? So Lisa is the Northrop Grumman Grumman employee uh, who 
Elizabeth pretends to be in AA so as to become the person being sponsored by Lisa, shows up fake drunk or actual drunk in a way to try to get in with Lisa. What did you make of these interactions? Ooh, I mean, like the fake drunk or real drunk to get in with Lisa is a good, like, back to this question of truth and delusion. Um, I actually, this, this was heartbreaking to me. Like there was mm-hmm. just, there was something like really heart wrenching about, I, I don't know. There's something about like manipulating like someone in AA that just like, it feels just as gross as like manipulating a teenager to me. Yeah. Well, and it's also like Elizabeth manipulating a woman of color, right? Yeah. We're meant to assume experiencing domestic violence. Yeah. Right. Who is in AA? Like there's just multiple levels of the manipulation. Yeah. yeah. So that, you know, and I think you're right to pair it with what Philip is doing to or, or with Kimmy in terms yeah. of the manipulation. Um, I think that that's, that that's about right. I mean, and so like we got us, we got to set up, we got a brief scene. I if it was in the previous episode or this one, um, that there's new stealth technology that the yeah. Americans are developing. So that's like the plot reason why this is in here. Yeah. And so like, to your point about like the like parallel with <clears throat> Philip and, and Kimmy and, it's interesting that that's your point. That's not my point. I was just no, but like your brilliant point. <laughs> oh my god, get out of here! Um, but to that point, to the to the parallel, it's interesting that one of the things we were sort of focusing on in the discussion of Philip and Kimmy is like Philip's sort of like distaste or disgust or like unease about this, and we don't get any of that from Elizabeth, right? Like again. We, we sort of like, we get that parallel of like the sort of where the emotional maybe gap is a little bit. Yeah, I actually do think there's a moment in the last scene between Elizabeth and Lisa where we do see on Elizabeth's face the way it is affecting her. I think that Elizabeth is impacted by like, Lisa's situation with her husband. Got it. Okay. Okay. I don't think Elizabeth is affected by the fact that she has to like exploit someone who is marginalized. A nuanced explanation, (laughs) as always, we love to see it. All right. What, what about Martha? Like Martha is, is mentioned, but not a, not on screen in this episode. Ah, this is good because I forgot to say this in the dossier, but like oh, we get a we get a mention of Martha not on screen. Martha is mentioned around foster kids, like we talked about a little bit earlier. Just a huge yikes there. Um She she might show up one day with the kid just at the doorstep, as I mean Philip says. I just but I just feel like Martha's days are numbered. Martha <laughs> Wants kids. Philip, Philip as Clark doesn't want kids. Now Martha like is gonna have foster kids. Just like, oh god, like the it's like we're I'm looking at a stopwatch on a bomb and the time is ticking down and each one of these things that Martha does is like a second is ticking away and we're just like getting closer to that like detonation zone (laughs) and like foster kids feels pretty fucking close to a detonation zone. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I'm going to no comment this one. I'm going to 
file okay. in the dossier uh, for for this part of the episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about Henry? We get a Henry's little bit in Henry. the episode. He has okay. more than one scene. It's a fucking miracle. Honestly, amazing. <laughs> yeah. So he's in the episode A. B, he is having a great time being quizzed on state capitals uh, by his dad, <laughs> right? So some good bonding, father-son time, um, where Philip is not at all preoccupied and doesn't mix up the order of is he asking the state or is he asking the capital. Um, and it's does, literally written on a card. <laughs> literally a flashcard does turn it into a good joke. So in, of course, uh, ulterior motive land, Philip is trying to use Henry to get uh, information about what Henry knows about Paige's feelings or ideas about church and church going and Pastor Tim. This was also uncomfortable. (laughs) I was like, oh, no, Henry. Yeah. (laughs) Let him be. (laughs) Yeah, because it's also a, like, further recruitment of Henry into spy-like activities as well. Yeah. Which Paige interrupts for the record. Well, Paige is like, oh, my ears were burning. Like, I heard you talking about me. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. I was like, Philip, be better at figuring out if your daughter is around, if you're going to try to do some stealth, like, rec- like recon on her. Come on. Yeah. Um, speaking of not being stealth at all, uh, <laughs> so the doorbell rings as they are getting ready for dinner. Oh, my God. And, like, they all go to hover around the entryway to the door. And Paige is like, you don't all need to answer the door. At which point there's some great father son hijinks at least where Philip is like, has like, you know, half hugging Henry and just like Henry and I can go hide in the closet if you want. This was my favorite like scene in the series thus far. (laughs) The whole dinner scene or just the doorbell? No, just the doorbell because it felt like something that would happen at my house. This was precisely my question. Like, are the Hanleys, are the Hanley sisters or the Hanleys in general, the Hanley siblings, like, are they a, like, cluster and gather if there's company coming and the door is, is, is... Doorbell was wrong or not? No, because like so, for my my birthday just recently passed, as you know, but our listeners maybe do not. Our our favorite Capricorn, our favorite Capricorn, uh, day after Christmas, worst birthday in the entire world. Correct. But my friend Marcus and my friends Marcus and Dan came over for my birthday, and like. <laughs> Marcus has been to my house before and he knows that my house is just kind of like a walk-in house. There's not like, there's no doorbell to ring. People don't, people who know us like don't knock, they just come in and like the, in the, you enter into what is the the dining room. It has a big table and like an open kitchen. And so Marcus just like walk, Marcus walks in and Dan had never been to my house before and was like, shouldn't we be knocking? And Marcus is like, no, this is not a knocking house. Just like so, there's no like receiving at the Hanley House. People just like come in yeah. and then like find us. Yeah, definitely the Jennings are a knocking house because the parents are spies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, who live across the street from? Honestly, I'm surprised they don't have like seven other locks on the door. <laughs> <laughs> that would maybe even be a little too suspicious. Other than like we we're we're always in the basement for long yeah. periods of time, and nobody is ever home ever. We love laundry. I know. Where did they think that Elizabeth was when she stayed over at Lisa's? Great question. That was the first question I had. Emergency. I'm not surprised at that at all. 
Uh, it's like, I'm not surprised that Paige is suspicious because they're bad at excuses. Like, give better excuses. You think that that would be a skill that they have as mm-hmm. world-class spies. Does <laughs> Paige have any friends? Do I think- mean, I thought that that blonde girl from last season was her mm-hmm. friend. The reason she's at this goddamn church in the first place. Yeah, they must not have been able to get her back because she's nowhere to be seen. Just Pastor Tim. Uh, we got Pastor Tim. We got the, like, Philip Pastor Tim, I think, uh, confrontation in the previously on. We and did. I was like, okay, Pastor Tim is back. Like, what's happening? And I was like, oh, he's coming over. For- he's her friend? That's weird. It's so weird. Uh, she doesn't need friends. She needs parents. She actually needs both. Yeah, maybe. But, she's, like. She's got multiple parents. Paige, Paige. No. Elizabeth, Philip, Tim, Tim's I, wife, and, you know, Father, no. Son, Holy Spirit. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate you so much. <laughs> yeah, um, full of that spirit. Okay, so there's also, though, this conversation about, like, disobedience and Jesus at the dinner table. Oh, my where God. Where they're like, I forget who it was that said this, but, like, I think this is Pastor Tim, or maybe it was Paige's question, like, couldn't Jesus have just gotten away like he knew what was going to happen like why didn't he just go away and like of course a spy family situation would ask that question about why didn't he just peace out i mean that was a question i asked all the time when i was younger (laughs) ah so daniel is a spy i'm like this just seems unbelievable (laughs) fair no, there's a little, it's a little, like, heavy-handed on yes. the, like, lessons from the Bible mm-hmm. without trying to, like, make them lessons from Pastor Tim. Yeah. Like, get out yeah. of here. Killing, dying, like, this conversation that, you know, he connects to his personal experience protesting something, of course. Yeah, well, and then there's also, like, to go back to a point you started the episode with around, like, performance and what we're meant to sort of, like, see and, like, what the effect of the performance is. And it's, like, part of that exchange, too, I think, is for Philip and Elizabeth to see just how much Paige has learned and how, like, in the church she is. Like, so that when the bomb of, I want to be baptized, gets dropped, like, ostensibly, it's, like, easy to be, like, see how well she's doing in all of this? See how good she is at this and how good it is for her? And they're, like, we're communists. Like, fuck religion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She's she's really good at uh, what she's doing. Um, all right. Jim, Philip's character. Uh, <laughs> Danielle, do you think he's both a lobbyist and a lawyer? They say this too many times in the episode. It was like deeply frustrating. I was like, stop having the same conversation. Like, well, yeah. Danielle, Kimmy is 15 years old. Kimmy's not an idiot. She, she <laughs> dated a political science major. She buys her clearly own. <laughs> mansplained lobbyists to her at some point in their brief relationship. There is I've, zero doubt in my mind about this. I feel like part of my like just general frustration around like this like consistent return to that specific conversation was just like I have a ton of friends who are lobbyists and lawyers, and yeah, it's I'm like a very common thing. So I'm just like, oh, my God, Kimmy, you live in Washington, D.C. Your dad works for the CIA. Like, 
You exist in this world. Yes, lobbyists are are lawyers. That's the whole thing. But A, she's high. B, she's infatuated she's, with Creeper Jim. Like, she's high on wood chip weed. So, she like, is high on wood chip weed. How is high is she? <laughs> That's a very fair point. Very, very, very fair point. Um, and, like, there's also just there's something about this character where Philip I mean, or Matthew Reese, like, plays him. Yeah. As extra shady and hard to pin down. Like, yeah. okay, he dresses like, I don't know, he was like a Beatles wannabe in 1969, <laughs> but like works on behalf of the beer companies as a lobbyist and a lawyer. Like, there's a lot that doesn't add up about Jim, but that has not stopped Kimmy. Let's talk a little bit about lighting and camera work notes. Okay. This is like the John McMahon specialty. So. It, it sure is. So I want to talk about the lighting and the first Soviet prison scene. Okay. Um, of the first of several that we get. I don't know. Like nothing, nothing in particular just to call out that it was a really effective communication about Nina's emotional state and also just visually I thought very cool looking. And then yeah. like on the camera work thing, I think there's a couple – like notable, like uh, Thomas Schlamme, like using camera pans in a way yeah. that is somewhat un-Americans like, like as we've discussed at several points now, Americans is very unostentatious with their yeah. cameras, right? Like they're not necessarily doing the full prestige TV, like cinematography uh, kit. Right. But there's this pan around the table as Nina is talking with this guy who's offering her the deal that then gets a little bit mirrored later on. Speaking of your point earlier about the paralleling of Nina and Elizabeth, yeah, the, the moving of the camera during the awkward dinner conversation was like very notable in the way that it kind yeah. of showed um, yeah. the camera work about Nina and the person that's you know deciding her future fate. But then I think the coolest camera shot of all in this episode is there's this like pan across the door frame, right. To like reveal Elizabeth, right. That was just like really, really awesome. It like emphasized Elizabeth's separation from Paige, from the rest of her family yeah. and all of this. It's just not something that you see in the Americans. And it sets up the last camera shot that I'll mention, and that is towards the very end of the episode, this almost final conversation between Philip and Elizabeth, where Philip is doing the dishes, he's at the sink or whatever, and Elizabeth is, like, purely shot for, like, almost a solid 10 seconds as her reflection in the mirror. Yeah. Ugh. That talk, was about, really... talk about your split subjects in mirror stages. I was just going to yeah. say split subjectivity. Yeah. We love it. We yeah. love it. Carrie Russell doing a lot in this episode acting wise, like her face, the like quarter of a second that we get of her face as Paige closes the door when she's like, great. Sounds cool. I'm, you know, I'm honestly the best quarter of a second face acting that we've seen in the series. Absolutely. And then we also get another kind of, um, you know, classic American, let's focus on somebody's face moment. Like, so she has this nightmare. I think we're to believe this nightmare is real. She, like, does some untranslated, like, Russian, like, exclamations. Like, all I call was obviously niet, 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 right? So, no. Yeah. She says, like, oh, my God, like, some equivalent of oh, my God at one point. And I couldn't make out what happened after that. Um, But then, like, as she's sitting there, as she kind of sits up in a startle, 
like the look on Annette Mahendru's face, she's like, oh yeah, remember all of those times where I was in a small room with Stan and I'm saying or doing one thing and my face is ex- expressing the like depth of emotional turmoil yeah. that I am experiencing. Let me it do was- that again, except now in the Soviet prison. Yeah, I I caught that and also was thinking about like, this is sort of a, a shot of a previous Nina that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I... Listen, the acting in this episode, this was a great episode, the acting in this episode and like the amount, it never ceases to amaze me the amount of like either emotion or lack of emotion. And sometimes it's, it's one and sometimes it's the other that these actors are able to communicate on their faces in such short periods of time. Yeah. Can we do something less serious now in gloss? Yeah, yeah. You have you have on our outline est analogy. So okay. I want I want to ask you if you at all have the experience of watching the est scene and more specifically them leaving the room and walking down the hallway. Of this is like every bad conference I've ever been in, and some like <laughs> nondescript generic could be literally anywhere hotel ballroom situation. Because I sure did, and then I'm like the analogies actually go quite. Deep. You've got some cultishness that's <laughs> happening. You have the like airless rooms with either too few or too many people in them. You have the weird uh, psychodynamic interactions they're supposed to be uh, like uh, dis- you know, disclosing of truth. You have the like awkward conversations in the hallway outside of the meeting rooms. It's all there. That's my analogy. It's not. It's not wrong. It's say, not wrong. Show me I the ha- lie. I hadn't thought of that. No lies detected. I feel like the also like walking with your bestie that like you're not <laughs> sure if they're a spy or not. Like there is like. Ow. Have you like worried about that about me at conferences before? No, but I I do feel like sometimes I end up walking. Actually, this has not happened in a long time, but like probably since we've been friends. But like before that, you know, like you have like conference friends that are like not actually your friends. Yes. Well, like, no, because I don't. I, don't try, I, I try to minimize interaction and socialization at conferences and only see my actual friends to my own detriment and sometimes their detriment as well. So I mean, like I feel good about that because I'm on the list of friends. So Obviously. like I like it when you come to conferences that you're not even going to that that just to hang out like that's that's like the ideal the other thing i was just thinking as you were like bringing up this analogy is like how much better would apsa be if we just got to yell at each other like out of nowhere like in the middle of an auditorium i think you just decided what our next proposal is for um, <laughs> we're, we're bringing Honestly, back we're bringing back fits. political science est for apsa i think we're Honestly, i think we're too fits. late for 2023 but maybe they'll grant us an exception under the state of exception of est 2023 apsa like has not closed yet so you know we got time. just fyi <laughs> <laughs> right great okay um i'm classically interested in like where in new york city uh, are things being shot in this episode um the i'm not but i love that you are the scene at the end i come to discover i couldn't quite place it it's yeah. uh, in riverside park and then okay. what I missed was I was wondering, okay, is Philip meeting with Kimmy and her friends at the Prospect Park band shell? Yeah. But the internet informs me it's the Forest Park band shell. So Where is Forest Park? In Queens. 
I mean, I only learned that there is a Socrates sculpture garden because Amy was like, let's meet there. And I was like, this exists. Yes. So. There's like a production meeting that I was not present for at the Socrates <laughs> sculpture garden. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it also included a diner trip. So like, you know, <laughs> this is a standard Amy day. Queen, Queens is a good, is a good place for that. Although uh, Amy and I are of course partial to Tom's diner uh, in Prospect Heights. Listen, I love Tom's diner. Amy has taken me there. Also, didn't know it wasn't in Queens. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So, Amy and I like triangulated neighborhoods. Tom's Diner was a classic meetup uh, when we were both in Brooklyn. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, Danielle, you wanted to say something about the presentation of Stan's search as a way to close us out for Gloss. Yeah, I think this is a bridge between Gloss and um, our next segment because. I think we don't usually get, so Stan, you know, rushes back to the diner, bangs on the door, like slams his badge, and then he's messing around in the diner bathroom, like, you know, he's pulling all the cloth paper towels out, and and like, there is an awesome soundtrack to this, and it feels incredibly curated, and I feel like we don't often get that level of like curation, like, Oh, I'm going to like match the music to like this, like kind of intense moment that also like is not intense. (laughs) Um, so I was just like, I was kind of fascinated by that. And especially fascinated by the fact that it's like, we get it with Stan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We don't get soundtracked big musical moments with Stan very often, or at least not to the extent that we get, Elizabeth and Philip doing spy stuff with 80s soundtracks. Exactly. So I just, I thought that that was a, like a great kind of like sort of music video montage, even though it wasn't a music video. Um, And I also think that that maybe segues us into uh, Bard Nostalgia for the Unremembered 80s. Yes. Okay. So the fact, the fact that Dan, that Danielle does not know what this is a reference to yet actually slightly precludes a full discussion of Bard nostalgia in this episode. So there we go. But I just want to say that, like, this is one of the most 80s bonanza episodes we've yeah. had in a while. So yeah. buckle in. All buckle right. in. This will surprise no one, but I, I wish we could have an hour long discussion just of the use of Yaz in this episode. Um, Danielle, you were not familiar with Yaz before. I had never album. heard of Yaz. I think I had like heard these songs before because like Elvis has a lot of eighties rides. At least <laughs> only you, you probably have heard in your life before. Yeah, no, the the songs all sounded familiar. It was just like I could not have named the band if yeah. you like tried. <laughs> so I mean, this is you know, this is like pioneering synth pop. Something I'm interested in um, as a going concern. Like, right? that's so, a like, thing. <laughs> so, I mean, Yaz to me is like class is is classic 80s okay. in a number of levels, right? Like, there's also like there's so many things to think about here. There's partly this comes out of like Depeche Mode has a hit album, and I forget the name of the guy that leaves to go form Yaz, right? Like he just ups and quits Depeche Mode after they've made it um, to form Yaz. They could not, their actual name is Yazoo, but they could not call themselves Yazoo in the U.S., so they were Yaz in the U.S., but uh, Yazoo over in the U.K., right? These songs are just, like, absolutely iconic. The album covers of Yaz, the only put two albums out are amazing, and it's, I think, perfect 
decision to score the Philip and Kimmy meeting yeah. via Yaz. Like Yaz is the, um, actually like it's within, it's diegetic, right? It's at least initially within the episode yeah. because Kimmy plays it for Philip. Right. So just like as a kind of marker of the relationship, there's like Yaz itself is one woman and one man who are in the band. There's conflicts between them. There's just so many layers and like, Yes, don't go. Only you fucking bangers. Goddamn gorgeous, beautiful songs. <laughs> uh, I just like love it when you can like wax poetically about music. <laughs> yeah, I mean, synth, like I said, synth pop pioneers. I do love myself some synth pop. Um, saw saw tennis. That was twenty twenty one, not twenty twenty two. Tennis is like very much in the Yaz uh, lineage. I feel great about that. Very I cool. have no idea, but you know, I'll take it. All right, Danielle, <laughs> what's what are they playing Yaz uh, on at the end of the episode? On the most iconic boombox I've ever seen in my whole The life. most iconic white person boombox. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The most iconic like 80s white person boombox. Yes. Like this was when you say this was an 80s bonanza, I was just like the boombox is like it's like 80s calling card. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Here, like, so Kimmy at this point has clearly Yaz on cassette, right? Yeah. Like, like she's rewinding a cassette tape yeah. in the boombox, it seems like. Like, I guess this is a thing you did in the 80s. Like, I'm going to go meet my, like, future lover who is 20 years older than I am, and I am Wild. only 16 years old. Who's a dirtbag. <laughs> who is a dirtbag, who's a lawyer and a lobbyist for the beer company. <laughs> And I'm going to bring my entire boombox for us to sit in the park. How did she get to the park? And did she bring that boombox on a bus? Also a question I had, did Philip pick her up? That seems a little maybe too not great given the whole CIA surveillance situation. Well, yeah. And also that like Carrie Russell almost died last episode, like near their house. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, so the boombox is extremely 80s. Yeah. All right, Danielle, we have to address <laughs> the, ele- to. the elephant in the room, which is... Literally. Yeah. I forgot that this existed, <laughs> but usually, like, the American discontent to, like, have a snippet of a show or news yeah. report or something on in the background. This, this episode, totally different. Danielle, we had to experience the full 30 seconds of the creepiest fucking commercial, the sexy baby commercial for Love's Baby Soft Perfume. I think the most fucked up commercial I've ever seen in my life. One million percent, but also, like, I definitely had Love's Baby Soft Perfume, like, in the 80s that I had, you know, that my mom had gotten and then, like, gave to us or whatever. And so I feel like... I don't know if I had ever seen that commercial, but it didn't feel foreign to me. Yeah. One. Two is that, like, it's just, like, so on the nose where they're, like, who wears the pants in this re- in that relationship? Like, Martha wants foster kids, loves baby soft commercial. Like, too much. <laughs> okay. Not only that, but to use a, like, Podcaster pod Guild required phrase, like, hang a hat on a hat of, <laughs> do you think Philip is having... Uh, difficulties emotionally reconciling himself to developing a 15 or 16 year old who directs a lot of sexual energy towards him. You're not sure? Okay, here's this fucking commercial. It's real Amy Sherman Palladino situation. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my god! Oh so my I don't, god. I don't, I don't know if the '80s were rampant with creepy, sexy baby, baby commercials. Like a, a 46 second internet search led me to find that this was indeed an, ex- an exceptionally uh, controversial commercial. Oh, really? Um, Interesting. A, a note that again. Always thank you to the Americans fandom wiki um, we for love. alerting me to that controversy. We love. All right. Any um, other thoughts on sexy babies? No, okay. literally none. <laughs> okay, good. Probably smart. Um, okay. What about substance situations? I've got lots of questions here about the, about the 80s. <laughs> and this is very much a like unremembered 80s situation. Okay. First, I was unaware that there's still not a national uniform drinking age as of Same. the timeline of the Americans. And this I did a little more Googling around. So it's the National Drinking Age Act of 1984 that says if you don't set it to 21, we start taking some of your highway funding. Yeah. So at this point, like it's still uneven and a majority of states, if I'm to believe Wikipedia, pre the National Drinking Age Act did have lower thresholds for drinking ages. I only knew that this was a thing because I had a friend who wrote a paper on this in grad school, Okay, <laughs> but I couldn't have placed it in time. So like when it comes up in the episode, I was like, huh? And then I was like, oh yeah, Robinson's paper. <laughs> and I mean, like this is an actually good gym historical accuracy thing that like he is working for a beer company to try to prevent this from going into right. effect. That actually right. does have some plausibility. Like I could buy that there were burnout hippies oh, working yeah. for beer companies to try to fight against the national drinking age. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's actually like a clever backstory. Yeah. Especially okay, for Reagan years. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I, I, have, I have a Reagan years qualm. Yeah. Maybe Go I don't know. It. Granted, like we're talking about two white people, but yeah. like it's the Reagan eighties. How can they just like at multiple places, including at one point where there is a young black woman with them, like just o- openly smoke oregano wood chip weed in public <laughs> in multiple public locations, and like no one seems to worry or like look out who's around anything like that. Like I can't imagine that in the eighties people just like out there like you know burning some joints, uh, you know, out in the open. But, like, keep in mind that this is before, I think, like, Dare and Nancy Reagan, like, really get, really get going. So, like, I think that the late 80s, like, that insight that you have, like, oh, this couldn't really be happening. It's probably more likely that it's the late 80s. But, like, we are before, like, the this is your brain on drugs egg. Yeah. (laughs) Like, posters. It's a a great point, as always. You know. (laughs) But that being said, I, my, like, as you were saying this, I was like, I don't know, like before, before smoking weed was legal, like if you walked through Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia, which is like the main park in the city, like people of all ages and races would be smoking pot at all hours. And like the police would kind of be like, don't do it. And they're like, okay, you can't prove it. And that's that. Right. Well, I, so, mean, I, I guess my specific question is that Philip is literally an KGB agent posing as somebody else. Yeah. Like, isn't but he concerned? Like, I think like I'm of two minds about this. One is that I, I suspect like the crackdown is not yeah. as rampant at, at this point in time. And then the other thing is like, 
for Philip, it's like, if the cops are chasing me, then I know how to get out of yeah, this. That's great. It's an excellent point. Philip will get away and they will arrest um, Kimmy's black friend, right? Who does Exactly. Who, right. Um, Danielle, do you have a note that we should talk about the, about <laughs> the eighties and divorce? There's something about like divorce in this episode that just feels like so aggressively eighties. Like it's like, ever present and it's like a thing that people are talking about there's something about divorce in the 80s that just feel like looms large for me i don't know why maybe i spent a lot of time watching like three men and a baby <laughs> okay that's sometimes i'm telling on yourself or like, like my two dads <laughs> <laughs> oh great show but yeah i just feel like divorce and 80s are synonymous like in a way that like is exemplified like in and through this episode. <laughs> Danielle, I'm impressed as always by you because the CDC is coming with empirical evidence for your claim <laughs> by pointing out that there was a high, like the, a peak divorce rate in 1981. <laughs> Amazing. So this Amazing. would be on the mind of Stan and Zanita would even know about it, right? Cause Zanita is like, Oh, the U S and Soviet union are the places where there are the most divorces in the world. Um, yeah. So on and so forth. She's but, got facts. She's coming at us with facts. She sure is. All right. What did you think of Philip and Elizabeth's disguises in this episode? Oh my God. They, they're like, they're antiquated. Like they, like you use the term hippie before I was thinking about like Elizabeth's disguise. She looks amazing in the disguise that she's wearing in the first scene. Yeah, the like first my scene first... is what I'm thinking of. Like the feathered hair is a good look for her. Yeah, I, my first note is Elizabeth outfit, amazing. Like, she looks great, but it's, like, 1972. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, like, something about the glasses, like, it's... it's the glasses like that are mirrored by Jim's, like, barely sunglasses, sunglasses exactly. with, like, exactly. a blue tint to them. So both of them are uh, focusing on entrapping Kimmy, the youngster, by being creepy people from the 70s, stuck in there forever and ever. A million percent. Yeah. Um, so next thing is, I just want to, and this is, I guess, like, flows nicely from the last point. There is something about Julia Garner's hair that is, like, so 80s to me. And I know that this is her regular hair. We've, like, seen her with this, like, in other, like, non-period pieces that she has been in recently. But the, like, super curly, super blonde, like, looks like it's permed and treated, like, is so 80s that it feels like just, like, perfect casting. Yeah. And, I mean, this is before Julia Garner is particularly known. Like, this is kind of her first, you know, not major role, but prominent role, right, to my knowledge. And so yeah. maybe that was one of the reasons she got cast in this show. I mean, I do think it's worth noting that, like, Julia Garner does kind of get her start. Obviously she goes on to greater fame in Ozark above all else and like renowned for her performance in Ozark and also like the movie, the assistant. Did you see that? That was brilliant. never seen Ozark, never seen the assistant. The assistant. I think you would like more than Ozark. Um, the assistant's <laughs> really good, but like, these are things that where she is kind of one of the, you know, she's kind of the second star in Ozark behind um, Jason Bateman. So like gets her start here on the Americans with the character of Kimmy. Listen, I think she looks better here than she does as Anna Delvey in the right, Inventing in, in Anna. Delvey, of course. Yeah, I did not watch uh, Inventing Anna. <laughs> Neither did I. Yeah. 
but it's um, like on Demois all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that does not surprise me. All right. I think you have a final note for the 80s and one of our longer bar nostalgia segments, but I'm here for it. But this was a packed 80s episode. so I Yes, they had two dance songs play on the soundtrack. Come on. I thought it was the same song, but anyway. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. Okay. Wow. I need, I need to, you go. I need to sit with that for a second over here uh, on my side of the Zencaster screen. Um, I just wanted to, like, end, end this segment by talking a little bit about, like, Nina and Evie's prison uniforms like also feels very 80s like drab sweatsuit like kind of matches the ambiance of the room that they're in like there's something about that that if I had no context of the show no context of where it was where they were where it was taking place time period I would be like feels like we're in the 80s just from looking at those uniforms yeah I mean and while the like the Soviet prison system of the eighties would end up on eighties fashion that could walk around the U.S. There you go. <laughs> All right, Danielle, who is our minor character of the week? Okay, minor character of the week for me is Tori, who is the woman who asked Stan on the date at Est, uh, played by Callie Thorne. I just, you know, she was doing the Lord's work, trying to get Stan out of himself, like. I just really, I felt for her. I was like, Stan, just say yes. Like, come on. (laughs) I I agree with you, but Tori, my friend, like, you can do a lot better than Stan, right? Oh, yes, but let us not forget, she has found herself at Est, so. (laughs) Fair. Maybe she doesn't know that yet. (laughs) But, like, I'm sure if we spent a second and a half watching a camera pan around the Est room, we could pick out... 27 better candidates for next to him literally philip i mean i don't know about that that might be the one person in the room is a worse option (laughs) oh i mean like spiritually yes a worse option but like more attractive oh yeah yeah thousand percent (laughs) like i think i'm thinking both in turn on the basis of looks and assume like togetherness of their life we can do better than Stan. But yes, Tori, like great performance. I think Kelly Thorne, who like I actually know from Rescue Me of all places, um, <laughs> does a great job in, uh, in the role of Tori. Danielle, I've got an honorable mention. Go for it. I love this. So the opening scene, we talked about Elizabeth's outfit, but the yeah. real steal, like the, 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 not person, the thing that steals the scene of that opening scene is our honorable mention minor character of the week. It's not the drug dealer. It's the drug dealer's hat. <laughs> I'll take it. That hat was solid and also just screamed, I am a drug dealer. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I am a 22 year old white man dealing drugs in the fucking park. Uh, that's why I have this hat. Oh, it's on brand. <laughs> I love it. I Yikes. love the honorable mention to a hat. Yikes uh, is right. I mean, male robot hats, like we are not limited by anthropocentrism with minor characters. I was just so going to we- say, like, people come to this podcast for our discussion of new materialism. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're going to write a sequel to Vibrant Matter about the drug dealer's hat and mail robot. Wait, this is only slightly related and then we can go to the cave, but I thought it's related. Is is this our ABT paper? (laughs) (laughs) No, I saw a tweet and someone was like, what's the best political theory on vibes? (laughs) Okay, I saw. I saw. Also saw this tweet. Okay, of course the answer is one. Sarah Ahmed and two. Yeah. Raymond Williams. A million percent. I was like three oh. marks. 
I was like, I know the answer to this question. I'm not engaging in this, but Correct. the best was never that tweet. Yeah. Gabe would have, <laughs> was like, this isn't the right answer, but it, but like here and then post a picture of Jane Bennett's vibrant matter. And I was like, that's genius. Like that is, a, <laughs> that's the best way to answer this because it's not the right answer. It's not an answer, but it's also awesome. Yeah. And Lauren Berlant is of course the other correct answer. Right. Correct right. answer. No, there are, there are correct answers. You and I are very tapped into those answers, but it's like <laughs> you might whoever's so. tweeting about political theory of vibes, like first of all, like, delete your Twitter. <laughs> I, great. I was just going to say evaluate your life choices, but really what I meant is delete your account. So. Um, I mean, this feels like a good segue into the cave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't understand that, but let's go with it. So Danielle, I could not come up no. with a theorist to take down to the cave with us. Although so we're going... I, wish, I was just going to say, I wish that we had thought of Jane Bennett with the, <laughs> and Vibrant Matter, but anyway. Vibrant Matter of the hat. All right. So we're going to go for my favorite bit, Ugh. one of my favorite bits, I think one of Danielle's least favorite yes, bits. Yes, I hate it. We're going to roll with our great friend, the random political theorist generator. I don't do well with uncertainty, and this is like the ultimate uncertainty on our podcast. Danielle, how do you feel about the uncertainty of number eight, your friend in mind, Nikki Machiavelli? I thought that you were going to say Schmidt because you went with friends and I got scared. <laughs> I actually feel pretty good about Machiavelli. I feel Machiavelli. like we have like very good fortune by receiving Machiavelli. Oh, nice. nice, I, nice I'd nice. like to say that was planned, but that was just in the moment. Fortuna, if yeah. you will. Our Fortuna on is... Fortuna. Yeah. <laughs> like a hat on a hat. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Machia- <laughs> Machiavelli talking about fortune in a way that suggests it's feminized is the hat and him being like, fortune is a woman and you must beat her because she only responds to like the wishes of young and like virile men is putting the hat on the hat. <laughs> yes. A great, uh, like a great analysis there. No, I think I like Machiavelli also because like we were talking so much about truth and delusion before that I think like there is a way so Machiavelli's most famous work arguably is published in is The Prince. It's published in 1514, but it's written before that. Um, Machiavelli is like an Italian philosopher and also like kind of a noble and also just like in the court. Like he's just like bopping around in in Florence? Yep, Florence would be correct. It's like, is that a city? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I want to go down the road of the prince here, though. Machiavelli has other works that John and I are both like relatively familiar with. I'm familiar enough in that I wrote comps answers on Machiavelli. Same. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that Machiavelli talks about in The Prince, which is a, a text that is like arguably... Um, sort of trying to coach a new prince in like how you might achieve and maintain power though. Like there's a lot of complications to get into. I mean, my like short explanation to students is that this is like partially a job application to the Medici. Yeah. And also partially a takedown, right? It's like, it's like a Machiavelli, perhaps the original both. I don't know about that. (laughs) But a great entry in the both and like encyclopedia. Um, 
Is that our APT paper? Stop asking that. But one of the things that Machiavelli talks about in the course of of sort of laying out all of these different ways to both like obtain and maintain power, Machiavelli is concerned with the sort of production of truth, this idea of effectual truth. And there's this connection between like having power and sort of defining what counts as truth. And so there's no objective truth for Machiavelli, at least within this theory. It's all about what gets defined by those who have power. And then it's like maintained by the extent to which others buy into the reality that you create. Like, so your ability to hold power is linked to your ability to control sort of like the bounds of reality. And I think that in the, in the Americans, in this episode, but I think in general, we see all of this manipulation around like what is real what is false like what's a fact what's an opinion like the blow up between philip and elizabeth or the power the struggle between philip and elizabeth over what's going to happen with page i think we can read that through the lens of machiavelli on sort of like this link between truth and power and thinking about like both of these actors are trying to like claim Paige's reality, Paige as part of their reality. And like, that's where the conflict sits. That's amazing. It's a like classic <laughs> off the dome, Danielle theory, Kate Ugh. moment. I mean, I think the, the effectual truth point is excellent. It also like shades Machiavelli in a kind of Foucault direction, which obviously I'm here for. Yeah. Right. And I think it gets to the heart also of, you know, one of the things that Machiavelli is interested in throughout his work, not just in The Prince, but also in Say Something yeah. Like the Discourses, is, and this is in part because of his own kind of positionality, but how do the functionaries of the state kind of operate vis-a-vis yeah. these effectual truths that are created and always being contested over. So yeah. like he would be interested in like the role of the production of a certain kind of like ideology of nationalism through yeah. like the spies, you know, if we could like magically transport them or whatever. And so like, as you were talking though, I was also thinking about like how to situate Elizabeth and Phillips kind of truth telling perspective or how to evaluate like the show's truth telling perspective vis-a-vis like the famous line in the dedication to the prince. So will you indulge me in some reading of the prince? Always. Nor do I hold as Machiavelli, nor do I hold with high regard. It is a presumption if a man of low and humble condition dare to discuss and settle the concerns of princes this is the famous line because just as who those who just as those who draw landscapes place themselves below in the plain to contemplate the nature of mountains and lofty places in order to contemplate the plains place themselves upon high mountains even so to understand the nature of the people it needs to be a prince and to understand that of princes it needs to be of the people right so this is machiavelli saying why he himself a lowly person who's kind of out of favor and yeah. like quasi-exile <laughs> right is the right person to write to and about and as you pointed out against the medicis so like where are philip and elizabeth in the plains mountains spectrum i a great question a great quote a great question i think like the thing 
that is becoming clear, at least to me, in these last couple of episodes is the show is, or like Philip and Elizabeth are most functional when they are together, reg- whether they are in the plains or in the mountains, mm, right? Great, love it. And where we are right now is that I think like Philip is in the mountains and Elizabeth is on the plains. And they are, like, diluting themselves and diluting each other in terms of, like, where they actually are. Amazing. Paige, then, I think, is the person who travels back and forth in this analogy or construct, right? Or Paige is the mountain. Yeah. Or the plane. Yeah. Great. Danielle, what a, I know you hate the random theory generator, I but do. Like, what, I a really great, do. what a great role through the random political theorist generator. Can I offer us a theory ship for the episode? Please. Returning us back to the primal scene, the awkward <laughs> family dinner where they talk about Jesus and such um, oh. with Pastor Tim and baptism and becoming queen for Jesus. I think that Pastor Tim, his wife, and Paige should have a little reading group, maybe with the shaggy-haired guy that they're trying to connect Paige with. And together, they should all read Giorgio Agamben's Time That Remains, a commentary on the letter to the Romans. Because I think they'll get to have some great theological discussions. I'll take it. I don't want to be part of that conversation, I but I... For, like, <laughs> 17 reasons, at least. Like, at least 17. Um, but I like it. I think we've come to the end of this episode. We sure have. A banger, if you will. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, we started talking about our indulgences, and here we are, <laughs> almost an hour and uh, 40 in. Uh, we love it. I well, do. thanks, as always, to producer Amy. Um, and up next in the feed is the American Season 3, Episode 5, Selang Pass. And we have a guest, a special yes. guest. Our first guest that we did not know before creating the podcast. Yes, a guest who has bestowed upon us wonderful resources. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You may remember our guest from the season two wrap-up. And so if you'd like to familiarize yourself, you can listen to that. Yeah. Otherwise, join us next week for season three, episode five with the one, the only listener, Mike. (laughs) Um, and thanks so much for joining us on Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast, which is created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.